Welcome to Notes on Vulnerability, a podcast designed to put stories of resilience, courage and being human at the heart of the conversation. I know the definition of vulnerability gives some people some issues and if you Google it, you'll probably get something related to tech. So just so we're on the same page, I define vulnerability as putting yourself out there, letting yourself be seen when you can't control the consequences of that. And honestly, I feel like this episode might be one of the most vulnerability inducing moments yet. Just before we begin, I want to apologise for the first minute of sound, which has gone a bit awry. I'm not a sound engineer. If there are any sound engineers out there who want to volunteer, please get in touch. Um, But bear with it because it ends after the first minute and then the sound quality is fine. How comfortable do you feel with the topic of sex? I'm guessing that this could produce a range of reactions from bravado to fear and embarrassment. What about if I start using words like pleasure, sexuality, sensuality? There's no doubt that sex can be something of a vulnerability minefield on a personal level, doing it, talking about it, and being open about wants and needs. And that's before you even start down the path of the way our views about sex have been shaped and shamed, from the impact of porn, to the way the LGBTQIA community has been ostracized and persecuted in the past and today. Then there's the horrifying use of rape as a power play, If you want a real-time example of that happening in the world right now, go Google mass rape in Ethiopia. I don't want to kill your buzz or anything, but the reality of sex for many people, especially people with vulvas, is that it has the potential to be weaponized. Clearly, sex and pleasure, which I think can unfortunately be two very separate things sometimes, are a veritable treasure trove of controversy, danger, shame, confusion, miscommunication, as well as absolutely utter bliss, self-affirmation, connection, confidence, and personal growth. It's a lot, which is why I'm glad I don't have to do this episode on my own and why I'm so excited to welcome to Notes on Vulnerability someone who has grabbed this particular bull squarely by the horns. Dr. Anna Huschlack is a sex scientist and pleasure advocate. She's an entrepreneur, one of the top 100 women in femtech, a DPhil graduate from the University of Oxford, and a published peer-reviewed author. She's been a panelist and speaker everywhere, from the Oxford Internet Institute to Google Campus, and she's also an adventurous traveller with a collection of incredible photos of breathtaking landscapes on Instagram to prove it. She's also a person with a purpose, and it's that purpose that is going to give us so much to talk about on this episode. Anna's purpose is healthy and pleasurable sex for everyone. She is the co-founder and chief scientific officer at femtech company Furley, an app that is designed to make sexual self-care simple, sensual and unashamedly normal. Furley's vision is to radically transform society's relationship with sex and unlock human potential. In plain speak, this means empowering 50 million women and folks with vulvas to have healthy, confident and pleasurable sex. Along with Furley co-founder Billy Quinlan, she has achieved this by building the world's first evidence-based digital guide for sexual difficulties and female pleasure. Furley's approach is based on the biopsychosocial model, which looks at the interconnection between biology, psychology and socio-environmental factors using mindfulness-based cognitive behavioural therapy. Of course, being at home with your sexual self doesn't require someone else, and the way that it sits with you is going to have a big impact on how you experience it. I personally feel like it's a lot more connected to all parts of us than maybe we're willing to admit. As the Furley marketing says, sex, it's not just about how you have it, but how you feel about it. We're here to help you understand and prioritise the most important relationship you have, the one you have with yourself. So let's get stuck in. Anna, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with a fairly straightforward, although massively broad question. How would you define mindful sex? Yeah, I think I think it's a great question, especially I think these days there's a lot of kind of conversations around mindfulness and is mindfulness the same as meditation and does this just you know involve sitting here in you know fifteen minutes of silence and and trying to drift my attention to something. Um, so I think it's yeah definitely a great a great starting point. For us, we would define mindful sex as sex where you're able to actually experience all of the feelings, the emotions, the sensations, everything you've got in the present moment, whether that's you know the good, the bad, the ugly, the messy, all of that, with curiosity and compassion. And the big thing for us is without judgment. So 
you know, kind of way of thinking about that is that sex is much more about being rather than about doing. And for us, it's around turning into how you, you know, actually feel and tuning out how you think you should feel. I would say like from my background, I don't know about you, but that is not the messaging I received growing up. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely not. I mean, I think, um, you know, if any of us, if any of us even received educations around it, I think a lot of the messaging we've received has been that, you know, sex is something that you do. And, you know, for women and folks with fathers, it's often something that's done to you. It's often penetrative. It's often heterosexual. It often involves two people. um, And it very much focuses on the other. Um, And I think, yeah, for us, it's all about kind of flipping the script, if you would, and rejecting that way of thinking and actually really thinking about our relationship to how we feel about sex, not just how we actually have it. So what do you think the differences are between male and female desire? So this is also a really interesting one. And there's a lot of um, phenomenal research that's just come out around this or has kind of come out in the last few years. I think the the starting point is looking at the differences between um, men and folks with penises versus men and folks with vulvas. So in general, I would say, I think it's around 75% of men tend to experience what's called spontaneous desire. Whereas 85% of women and folks with fathers tend to experience what's called responsive desire. So I think <laughs> pausing to break that down, because there's a little bit of uh, you know, science, science language on that. Um, spontaneous desire is desire that just kind of appears. So it's you know, somewhat out of the blue, hence the idea of spontaneous. Whereas responsive desire actually relies heavily on one's context and the environment. And this is where actually um, education's probably also let us down and that we're often taught that sex happens in the genitals and between the legs. Whereas, you know, we, we would argue alongside uh, several other researchers and practitioners and kind of experts in the space that actually the sexiest organ we have is our brains. So in terms of how that actually works or kind of looking at the science of that, there is um, what is called the dual control model of sexual response. Um, and uh, Emily Nagoski did some work with the Kinsey Institute around this and came up with a really great analogy, which is looking at the brain essentially having gas and brakes like a car. So then kind of taking that into to the next level of it, when you actually look at the neuroscience of desire, just like driving a car, your brain has a sexual accelerator and that responds to all of those little things that are sexually exciting. So, you know, it could be the touch of someone's hand, a locked gaze, the smell of perfume, cologne, um, I don't know, the cabin in the woods, you know, the romantic setting, et cetera. And these are all the little cues that push on your gas and tell your brain to get in the mood. Now, on the flip side, again, just like driving, your brain also has what's called the sexual breaks. And these are all of the things that are signaling that, hey, brain, it's maybe not the best time to get in, get in the mood. It's maybe not the best time to get turned on. Um, you know, so, for example, say I'm on a Zoom call with my parents or I'm in the middle of recording a podcast uh, <laughs> or I'm stressed at work or I'm worried about getting an STI or things like that. So, this combination of gas and brakes is unique to every person's brain. Obviously, every person is unique. And therefore, every person's brain will interpret these cues differently. Looping them back to the idea of responsive desire um, versus spontaneous desire, looking at um, the kind of experiences with women and folks with vulvas, that is why creating the right context. So in other words, playing around with getting to know your gas and your brakes. So the things that accelerate arousal, Um, the things that kind of um, encourage desire versus the things that turn it off, switch it off, get you out of the mood, figuring out how to play around with these and how to essentially create the right context for sexualist sexual stimuli um, and therefore our ability to exactly that respond or not respond to desire. So yeah, big, big kind of whirlwind in there, but the main differences, you know, to kind of summarize that are that Um, in order to facilitate desire um, for women and folks with fathers, that's very much dependent on the context and in creating an environment that allows them to respond to those sexual stimuli, which is then, you know, the kind of hack, if you would, to to getting in the mood is getting really familiar with what your gas is and really familiar with what your brakes are and uh, being able to create an environment that is basically conducive to that. And that's something you can do on your own. 
Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, I mean, we would, we would argue that, it, you know, sex starts with oneself. I think it's, it's really interesting, again, going back to that conversation we, we were just having around um, how we've been taught or how we've kind of learned about sex and not being with somebody, somebody else. I think for us, like, you know, it's interesting that often the hands of others explore our bodies before our own hands do. And so I think everything from knowing how your body works to also knowing the context that works for you so you know for example I've got friends that really love public sex that really love um kind of voyeurism that really love dress up and I've got other friends that you know the first sign of noise in that in the house around them would put them off because they'd be worried people are going to overhear them and they prefer privacy and they prefer um kind of uh, I don't know, more isolated environments, etc. So when it comes to learning your gas and brakes on your own, it's a, a kind of combination of essentially recognizing all of the things that um, environmentally, physically, psychologically, relationship-wise, socially, etc., get me more comfortable with being in the mood for sex. So that push on my gas versus all of the things that... Um, slow me down that push on my break and that got me out of the mood for sex you know and that can be as simple and and there's some great worksheets around this you know I mentioned Emily Nagoski and she's got a book come as you come as you are which actually um does have some activities and worksheets to work through but it's as simple as writing a list of saying you know what are the most positive experiences I've had what are the most negative experiences I've had um what are the kind of commonalities across these you know what time of day was it? Where was I? Who was around? What was my relationship like with my partner or by myself? Was I stressed? Um, what did we do beforehand? What was I wearing? What were they wearing, etc. And starting to recognize the, the kind of common themes across these. And then from that, you've essentially got a toolkit for creating your right environment. So it's actually a lot more complex than like giving yourself wrist strain with a rampant rabbit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also I think, you know, that's a really good, and um, that's also a really good, good point is there's a difference between arousal and desire. So we often treat arousal and desire as the same thing, but in, and <laughs> we'll dive into the science of that, but in reality, they are, they are slightly different. So arousal, if we think about um, that being your body's um, kind of physiological reactions to sexual stimuli. So for example, increased blood flow, um, increased heart rates, um, my body temperature goes up, you know, folks may experience more wetness, et cetera. So it's all of those um, bodily sensations, if you think about it. Desire is more around our wanting to have sex. So it's, you know, when we talk about how and much in the mood am I, that's typically more of desire. Um, and this is a really interesting point because uh, they aren't always aligned. So, you know, sometimes people have high arousal and low desire. Sometimes people have high arousal and high desire. Sometimes people have low arousal and high desire. And all of those combinations are, quote, normal. Um, and when I say normal, I mean that they're unremarkable which is probably the one time in our lives we're comfortable being called unremarkable um but I think you know there's also a really interesting concept and this is idea of concordance versus non-concordance and concordance is essentially when your arousal and your desire are in sync um so the amount that your body is having a physiological response is on par with how much you want sex non-concordance is when the two are in disagreement so when arousal and desire aren't the same um, you know, a really uh, obvious example of this, and, and uh, I would put a trigger warning in here, is for folks who've experienced sexual violence, they might be having arousal responses. So, for example, lubrication, but their desire is definitely not there. They are not um, <laughs> in any way wanting that sex. And so that would be this idea of non-concordance of when the kind of Body and body and mind's response, if you would, are not in the same same place. And on the flip side, you can also have experiences where, um, you know, particularly for example, with uh, postmenopausal women, where the desire is quite high, but the arousal might be low. So, for example, struggling with with wetness um, and with lubrication. So, yeah, I think as a as kind of caveat to that, it's definitely not as straightforward as we think it is. And I think particularly for women and folks with vulvas 
this is why it's so important that we're learning um, and finally starting to put a spotlight on this because our our bodies are different um, our responses are different our you know the way and kind of we experience desire arousal pleasure etc it's different and historically that's been kind of systematically under researched underrepresented um has just kind of been left out of the conversation and it's not it's not as straightforward as just popping a pill and having that quick fix i feel like it's um it's also that there might be an element of sort of permission and as mm. in giving yourself permission to be a sexual person mm. um and I often feel that, especially for women and folks with vulvas, that we're told that sexual confidence is something that comes with age or that never happens. Like, it's kind of like, oh, hey, you know, this part of you, um, it might, you might get to know it, you might not. Um, and there's so much, there was so much acceptance of this narrative. Mm. Um, so what are your views on that? So, I mean, I would fundamentally say, to me, it has nothing to do with age. Um, it's it's much more about and I, th I think this is also the case irrespective of genders um you know and and wherever your one might be on that that spectrum of genders I think it's much more about your relationship to yourself so again if we go back to this idea that we're taught that sex is between others rather than sex starts solo um already we're kind of defining our our confidence against something or we're comparing it against something I think what we've found is that um when you when you flip that and you actually look at you know what is your relationship to yourself how is your self-confidence how is your body image how is your self-esteem how is your self-worth how are all of these different components that to me is what all together pulls together into what would be our sexual confidence and you know throughout our lives that's going to ch like change very immensely you know I might be confident um, in my first year of university then I might go through a breakup and that might change. Then I might be confident when I get a new job and I move cities. And then, I don't know, I might lose my job and then my confidence wavers. And, you know, I think there's, there's major transitions that we go through throughout our lives. And, you know, the same way as our kind of lives ebb and flow, I would say our sexual confidence ebbs and flows alongside that. So it's, it's not to say that by default, you know, my mom is more confident than I am. It's more that, um, in the kind of unique combination of experiences that I've had and, and navigating the transitions that we all inevitably go through, whether that's, you know, thinking through the lens of, of sex, whether that's, you know, our first, our first experiences, whether that's, um, you know, our first real relationships, whether that's breakups, rejection, whether that's, you know, if people choose to have kids, if that's around parenthood, whether that's around, um, negative sexual experiences like you know sexual assault or um, abortions or traumas whether that's around marriage whether that's around miscarriage whether that's around menopause whether that's around illness divorce um, you know loss of a partner etc like there's no way that we can go through all of these very profound and very um, intense experiences throughout our lives and not expect that our sexual competence and, and, you know, quite frankly, our confidence would be affected by that. So I think it's, yeah, when I, when I think about that and this thing of, you know, that'll come with age, I mean, what might come with age is we've been through more experiences, but that's not to say that I'm any smarter for them or I've learned anything or I've grown from them, you know, hopefully I would have, but <laughs> if I hadn't, then it's likely that my again my relationship with myself hasn't evolved and so I think it's it's less about you know hitting a certain age and it's more about um yeah your relationship to yourself as you navigate the you know inevitable transitions and the inevitable experience that will kind of ebb and flow throughout our lives um and yeah I think it's yeah it's really limiting limiting not just for younger folks who are like well do I have to wait until I become, you know, X, X amount of years old to, to become confident, but also for older folks who are navigating changes, for example, you know, I know a lot of our community has gone through divorce or has lost partners or, you know, is going through menopause and to be told that you're supposed to be sexually confident, you know, it's, it's limiting in that it doesn't necessarily allow them room to explore what's happening to them and to explore the changes that they're going through and to do so with compassion and without judgment. So it's very much more about letting people be individuals. Yeah, definitely. I think letting people be individuals. And 
and recognizing like again I, I would say for us it's much more about how we as individuals respond to transitions whether those are sexual or not um and I think you know that's very clearly where we would argue that sexual well-being and sexual health very much connects to the other kind of pillars of our well-being and our health so physical health mental health emotional health and social health etc um and so I think it's it's much more around taking an integrated and like a systemic approach to thinking about health and well-being and therefore confidence um, as opposed to treating these things as kind of individual silos that aren't impacted by one another. So one of my questions was going to be how connected is sexuality and sexual health to mental health and you've already answered that. You've, you've answered it in the context of how mental health impacts your sexual experience but what about the other way around? Mm, definitely and I think so a couple of couple things that come to mind on this one for me so just going back to mental health more broadly like I you know in all of the research through and through again regardless of gender regardless of age regardless of race um you know obviously there's going to be nuances to that but uh, there is no argument that mental health is not related to our sexuality and our sexual health like that that couldn't be more clear um in that it's completely fundamentally connected um, looking through the lens more, I would say, of sexual well-being and the kind of um, influence on our mental health. So in that there's quite a bit of research, you know, across different countries and cultures around this, but 51% of women um, and folks with fathers are currently experiencing at least one sexual concern. Um, so those might be, you know, a lack of enjoyment, a lack of arousal, a lack of desire, pain during sex, inability to orgasm, etc., which have lasted more than three months in the last year. So, you know, that's not an insignificant amount of, of women, um, you know, and I think within that, the most common sexual challenge that we, we tend to see and that research has shown is, is the kind of most common is low libido and that affects one out of every two to four women globally. So again, this will vary slightly depending on the kind of country or region that's being looked at, but on average, um, yeah, it's, you know, one out of one out of two or one out of four. And I think where mental health ties into this is it's all around the beliefs we have around sex. Um, and I think that's, that's where there's a really clear link. So, you know, a lack of education, um, a lack of kind of cultural openness around it, a lack of conversations, all of that leads to what has been a huge amount of stigma, amount of kind of shame, taboo, et cetera, around the topic of sexual well-being, and especially around the topic of, you know, female pleasure. I think that's, again, for a whole bunch of reasons, been particularly left out of the conversation. And it's really difficult when we develop these beliefs over time of what sex should be or what I as an individual should be or shouldn't be or should look like or shouldn't look like. To, to ditch those and I think you know when we kind of get caught on this curse of the shoulds if you would we we end up in these cycles of shame and that has a massive influence on our mental health um, and also then looking looking on the other you know kind of in reverse you know looking at um, all these different things from stress anxiety depression also just like the busyness of our worlds and the amount that we're now multitasking which realistically we can't actually do it's it's much more switch tasking because the brain doesn't actually do multiple things at the same time you know we spend so much time worrying about the future or ruminating on the past that where we completely forget to actually exist in the here and now and you know of course that's going to have an impact on our ability to enjoy sex you know it's it's there's almost this like i don't, I don't even know how it's set this like uh, not like plague that's that's too strong especially given what we're going through right now that's too strong of a word um but there's almost a this, virus yeah I mean, not quite as well it's not quite like that but in some ways it is there's this kind of like I would say universal apathy if you would which is this kind of like general lack of of interest and pleasure and um aliveness and activities that we've we've typically found enjoyable and I think you know there's um dr nan wise in in a book uh really great great read on why good sex matters talks about like how we've lost um the kind of sense of like hedonism and i think often we see hedonism as a bad thing but um or like an indulgence or a, something we don't give ourselves permission to feel but the argument is much more around that 
it's it's a lot a lack of pleasure a general lack of pleasure across our lives so not just in sex but in terms of eating a meal going for a walk um having a good night's sleep having a bath all of these activities that you know are fundamentally enjoyable and sensual and can bring us a sense of aliveness we, we kind of just do on autopilot um because we're so focused on like getting shit done or um, we're so mentally distracted or we're trying to juggle a whole bunch of things at the same time and we're short on time um, you know coupled with for a lot of folks dealing with chronic stress anxiety depression all of that which also has um, a massive you know hormonal influence on the body in terms of like hormones like cortisol and long-term impacts of that but yeah it's 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 crazy to me to think that um, we've even tried to separate these things rather than recognizing like how fundamentally, fundamentally interlinked they are. Um, you know, and I know there's also research that's shown that one of the strongest predictors of sex-related distress is actually our mood and emotional well-being. You know, it's the research is there and we're only just starting to think about it in that way, as opposed to thinking about sexual health as like, you know, the absence of STIs, pregnancy prevention, and maybe like an awkward two-week course we had on like periods and puberty. Um, and actually recognizing that it is, it is much more our bodies operate in systems and, and all of those things are you know completely embedded with one another. And we can't really quote treat anything without actually looking at the system as a whole. I was just wondering like whether we have tried to separate this part of ourselves in the past because that's where we feel you know the most vulnerable like sex has been so surrounded by shame mm. and whether that comes from I don't know I don't want to start pointing fingers but you know religion. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <The> patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, yeah it just seems so underdeveloped you know like we're quite into food as pleasure Mm. even that has problems you know but yeah you're right when you were talking about pleasure then I was thinking that sometimes pleasure has become a very functional thing you know yeah I mean a really great analogy of of it being a really functional thing is like why we masturbate or sex itself like for most people they masturbate in the same way their whole lives and it's the equivalent of um scratching an itch you know it's like <laughs> get out the vibrator, put it on speed, whatever, two minutes later, bang, I'm done. And that's it. And I go to bed, you know, um, and we've become so focused on goals and results, um, which in one hand, you know, I'm, you know, laugh about this with Billy, like I am very much a goal, a goal focused person. And sometimes I think to, um, you know, detriments in my relationships because it's, it's too focused on goals. But um, so I, I definitely think there's, you know, there's, there's powers in goal setting and in like habit formation and in, you know, um, ambitions of growth and all that kind of stuff. But there's also on the flip side, when that becomes so much so that again, we lose the sense of enjoyment that comes with it. So, you know, I think it was, uh, I think it was, I'm going to say Jamila Jamil that just did um, an exercise for the, for the, like pure joy of just dancing to disco and moving rather than to lose weight, you know, or I think, yeah, it's, it's, if we look at, as we said, like across all these pleasurable activities, so eating movement, um, even taking a shower, masturbating, all of them end up coming with a goal of um, having an orgasm, getting off or losing weight or getting fit. And I think it's, it's interesting when we actually, again, going back to the analogy of, of kind of sex and masturbation and goals, um, by putting a focus on getting off, we completely forget the journey of just getting there and in, in, like to begin with. And I think, you know, a lot of our community does struggle with things like orgasm. And to be honest, it's no surprise because there's so much pressure on this what is a really fleeting and tiny little moment in what is actually like a much broader and much more enjoyable process. And I think, you know, for us, we would say pleasure is not synonymous with orgasm when it comes to sex, yet we've kind of been educated that it is. And more than that, again, for women and folks with vulvas, we've also been educated that, you know, in heterosexual relationships, your orgasm doesn't really matter that much. 
Um, and, you know, you can look at you can look at research around um, the pleasure gap and, you know, there's much higher rates of inequalities in, in heterosexual couples than there are in, for example, um, lesbian couples. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of stipulation around why that is. But it is it is this whole focus and even, you know, even the fact that it was called the orgasm gap up until recently instead of the pleasure gap, again, shows how much of a goal we're putting on these these actions and these behaviors rather than actually just again existing in the moment to experience them to enjoy them you know if we're eating a meal and you know we're I don't know say we're out for we're out for dinner in a world where we're able to do that again Um, and we've got you know our appetizer and our mains and our desserts and you know I don't know a glass of wine or lemonade or whatever it is and the whole process is about the company we're with it's about you know those different stages of the meal it's about what is the weight of the cutlery in my hand if I'm using that or how does the texture of this food feel or um you know how is the light changing or like the music changing in the environment we're in and there's all of this stuff that creates this hugely sensual and hugely pleasurable experience yet that's very different than um if we showed up and we're like great I want to eat this as quickly as possible as effectively as possible with the goal of basically getting back home you know and I think for whatever reason um the again across the board we've kind of lost our ability to experience pleasure in that way and to to actually focus again on this feeling of aliveness and instead of focusing on the effectiveness or the convenience or hitting the goal. And, and I think it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a shame because, you know, you tie that in again with the busyness of our world, the, the, the desire to multitask, the desire to optimize and all of these things, which just seem very counterintuitive to the, the, again, the process of, of being, um, if you would. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting um, to sort of look at it in, like when you're talking about the meal, like that because you know that's kind of optimum sex really in in you know in a food metaphor isn't it yeah 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 definitely I'm outraged by the statistics on the orgasm gap you know but obviously that's Mm. me being obsessed with orgasms too Um, (laughs) how do you think we can break down the stigma around sexuality you know around embarrassment and shame about being more vocal about uh, sex and pleasure and you know what you need because I think it's also really hard to ask for what you need yeah definitely definitely yeah and I think I'm and, and it also again it depends on the context right like you might be 19 and um you know in a relationship with somebody who's basically been a best friend who you know really well for five years and feel really comfortable communicating or you might be in your 60s and dating again for the first time and not comfortable you know and or it might be the opposite where you're 19 and in your first relationship versus you're in your 60s and you're in a long-term relationship and you know so I think that that communication piece in particular is is one that definitely comes up with our community and and one that I I also still struggle with um and sometimes it's it's again often related to my confidence like if I'm feeling more sexually confident communication is fine if I'm feeling less sexually confident communication is awful you know um but going back to the the kind of points around vulnerability and how do we tackle the kind of shame and stigma around it I mean yeah (laughs) there's there's again probably no kind of one size fits all or no easy way of doing it I know for me personally and and this is where I've kind of treated myself both Billy and I um we've treated ourselves as kind of work in progresses um, neither of us actually come from backgrounds in sexual health. So a lot of this has been, I think what's been really cool about it is, you know, I feel like I've done like a second PhD and <laughs> all things sex and use my, myself as my own case study, um, which is not always easy for partners, but <laughs> that's, that's a whole other conversation. Um, Depends how you record your research. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does make, it does make dating sometimes a little bit complicated, but um yeah, I think, you know, kind of areas that we've seen around it are at the individual level. Like, I know a big thing for me around um, feeling more comfortable being vulnerable often comes with feeling more confident, um, as well as feeling like it's like, quote, a safe space to be able to be vulnerable in. And so I think part of that comes from at the individual level, like, doing the research 
you know, like listening to the podcasts, reading the books, having those conversations with oneself and just essentially like upskilling and like uplearning in an area that often most of us have had pretty shit if non-existence education's in, but have had very deep, um, almost like indirect educations in it again through like all the media, the, the kind of cultural things, the yeah, the the stuff that circulates around this topic that becomes almost like a pseudo education. Um, so I think, yeah, the kind of first step in getting rid of the shame and and the stigma around it is actually like getting the information and getting like good quality, real information. Cause there's also like really bad information and a lot of misinformation around it. So I think, yeah, that that's kind of certainly for Bills and I, a starting point is like having those individual conversations. And then I think at the kind of collective level, it's around um, challenging ourselves to push back against, um, yeah, stigmas around it or to hold people accountable in those conversations, you know? So certainly for us as two female founders talking about sex, um, we've come up against certain conversations where we've had, you know, folks say to us like, why is this just for women? Or is sex really a big issue? Or um, down to we're dressed too sexy for conversations versus we're not dressed sexy enough or our voice is too sexy or not sexy. And like, what is absolutely just like complete ridiculous conversations to be having. Um, <laughs> but I think that, that, you know, the point of it is in those circumstances, we then push back. So I think there's a thing of saying, oh, interesting. Tell me why you think this is too sexy. Or why do you so, so diplomatic and not just say, look, it's none of your damn business, mate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Billy's probably more along those lines. Um, and I'm probably more the one who's like a little bit more diplomatic, but that's where we also are very complimentary to one another. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's like, for example, we've had, you know, we've had folks write into us um, asking why is fairly just for, for women and folks with fathers. And there used to be a whole kind of explanation around, well, you know, if we look at the pleasure gap and if we look at like rates of sexual violence and if we look at, um, you know, the kind of the lack of research around um, female pleasure and blah, 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 blah. And it's gone to a point now, which, you know, was exactly that where Bill's just basically replied saying, because we chose to. <laughs> that's how we wanted to build it um and so I think there's there's this this thing of like part of the thing I think around like smashing the, the kind of taboos around it and opening up the stigma and the shame around it is having those challenging conversations and knowing when to move into kind of diplomacy and conversation and explanation and saying hey look actually that's interesting that you hold that view let's unpack where that comes from or tell me a little bit more about that versus this just needs to change and that's the way it is. Um, and so I think by juggling between doing our kind of individual upskilling and, and building our individual confidence and then being part of like a broader movement um, and building a collective confidence around it, it, it allows us to facilitate, facilitate those conversations to um, open up environments to have these, these kind of discussions regardless of where you sit on them and to make sure that we're also doing that in a way that's, you know, while maybe a little reb like rebellious and a little bit radical is never condescending and it's it's never patronizing because I think that's also something that can put people off from being open to those conversations um and just highlighting the normalcy of it as well like you know for us sex is about as common as going for a walk getting a good night's sleep and brushing your teeth you know and, and masturbation same thing like if we look at our basic needs you know sex comes into that it's it's not like this is some like rogue thing that nobody does um <laughs> and so I think the more that we also just like recognize that it is as much of a priority as our mental health and our physical health and it's as normal as our mental health and our physical health the less stigma there is around it because it's really like not a particularly again remarkable or exciting or unusual topic like it's you know, it's, there's nothing particularly novel about it. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's also not particularly uncommon. So yeah, I think working at the individual and the collective level, um, building our confidence around it, pushing back against the kind of stigma and the shame and having those uncomfortable conversations through the lens of, of empathy, and also just recognizing how 
normal and common and every day the topic it actually is all will help get rid of that kind of that shame that stigma and that awkwardness around it so what do you think are the consequences for anyone who tries to avoid being vulnerable in an intimate relationship i mean so i think it also depends on well a couple of things on that to me it would depend on like our definition of vulnerable um, and what vulnerability actually means, because certainly if I was to think about it in a sexual context, as we just said, you know, that's going to vary hugely depending on where I'm at in my life, the experiences I've had, where my own kind of mental health, emotional health, physical health is at. Um, and also that if, if I'm in a relationship or, or I'm being not necessarily a relationship in terms of it being a long-term relationship, but through the lens of I'm interacting with someone else or multiple someone else's. Um, my concept of vulnerability might be slightly different. So I, I think, yeah, the, the starting point to me is not actually on, you know, what are the consequences of being vulnerable or not being vulnerable, but there's a step before that, which is what does vulnerability actually mean to me in this instance? in this relationship, whether that's with others or with myself. And what if I don't act on that? Um, or no, rather, how if I don't act on that, am I actually not being of service to myself? I think the implications of a failure to be vulnerable in our relationships, either with ourselves or with others, is where we risk losing our own kind of authenticity, if you would. Um, or losing our sense of self so you know an example of that would be and this is from personal experience you know I think it's taken me the better part of like probably two decades um to get comfortable with saying no um mm -hmm. and and I don't mean saying no in the kind of instances of like explicit consent to sex for example but there so there's a term I've spoken about this quite a bit because it's, it's something that drives me absolutely up the wall but there's a term within academic research which is called sexual compliance um and it counts as consensual sex but essentially it's that you are complying with unwanted sex so it's that yeah, yeah and it like it, it's just like even when you think about it like everything about that is just so ridiculous but it's it's consenting to unwanted sex and by default to me that like How that's not consent, consent. <laughs> but where that comes from is this idea um you know an example of that would be um and and I've you know I've interviewed hundreds of women around this topic and it's conversations like it was easier to say yes than to say no or I didn't want to hurt their feelings or I wasn't in the mood but I thought maybe if I went through with it I would or we were in a relationship and I, I haven't really wanted sex for a while and I felt guilty so I just you know I, I thought it would be better to just try and have it um, so it's, it's conversations like that and that's where I see vulnerability actually playing a really big role um, because you know for whatever like un I can't even make sense of it reason consent seems to be something that is somehow complicated for folks to understand but that's consent without then factoring in this idea of sexual compliance of consenting to unwanted sex which like creates a whole other um area that I think we just don't necessarily talk about which is um and we see we see so much and we see so often and I think you know failing to be vulnerable to to recognize one's needs and being authentic to oneself and honest with oneself leads us to finding ourselves in situations that aren't pleasurable that aren't healthy and where we feel a lack of confidence and you know a, an example of that being you know the this kind of aspect of of consenting to unwanted sex um rather than just saying actually something else is going on here like I'm not in the mood because I'm stressed with work or I don't feel connected to my partner or actually you know if this person gets upset with me for not wanting to have sex that's actually a bigger flag and I need to confront that and I think yeah the the failure to kind of lean into vulnerability I, I think has risks really finding ourselves in situations that are unhealthy um and, you know, whether that's relationships, um, whether that's sexual encounters, 
um, whether that's again how we treat ourselves um, and, and I think the vulnerability is critical in terms of yeah allowing us to actually and, and I, you know as I said that but like really make sure that we're entering our our relationships our experiences through the lens of you know this is what healthy means to me this is what pleasurable means to me this is what confident means to me and I know that and that is my truth you know that might vary with time but vulnerability allows me to own that truth rather than to find myself in a position where I'm ignoring that truth and I'm being inauthentic to myself um you know and then from that there's that whole kind of like spiral around shame and around self-worth and self-esteem etc yeah that's a really good answer Mm. not that I'm rating your answer (laughs) (laughs) so you can also rate it that's fine (laughs) um okay so I wanted to talk about porn um, Mm. and you know the impact of that pornography has in shaping people's attitudes um and I came across this this sort of professor uh not a sort of professor a professor Christine Barber (laughs) Um, she's a professor, professor of interpersonal violence Prote- prevention at the mm. University of Central Lancashire. Um, and she was part of a team who conducted research into the impact of pornography in five European countries, including the UK. Um, and it basically involved nearly 5,000 young people between 14 and 17. Mm. They found a significant association between boys' regular viewing of online porn and their use of sexual coercion and abuse. So boys who regularly watched online porn were also significantly more likely to hold negative attitudes towards females. What what they didn't manage to establish um, is whether the behaviour comes first and porn reinforces it or porn influences Mm -hmm. the behaviour. So we can't stop young people looking at porn or any of us. And I personally think that, you know, porn can be great. but alongside it, you know, we need an analytic and gender deconstruction of the messages of porn because mm. it's often watched in a vacuum with no real understanding of what like healthy, joyful sex looks like. Um, so how can we, and this is a huge question to ask you, <laughs> how can we change the impact that porn has? So I, I guess um, just zooming out a little bit, um, I think when we talk about porn, there's also various different understandings of that so um when i think about you know the implications for example of that research the porn that i'm thinking about is um mainstream porn that's through a very masculine lens um isn't necessarily always consensual um you know there's kind of questions around the productions um production of it from an ethical perspective um not always but sometimes um and it's very performative in nature that is very different to for example and I think you know you kind of touched on this some of the what I would call more feminist porn that we're starting to see for example Erica Lust does some phenomenal stuff around this Cindy Gallup as well and I think that porn is one that is being produced in an entirely different way um it, everywhere from like the treatment of its you know of its actors and its crew to the story and the messaging within there to also like the, the aesthetic components I mean a lot of Erica Lust's work I feel like I'm watching like <laughs> some like art house like you know like beautiful cinematography that kind of thing um and also the the kind of aspect of performance or the roles that we find within that porn is very different so I think that's kind of one differentiation to make and then the other one I would say is the difference between porn and erotica so I think often we treat porn and erotica as the same thing um certainly for uh myself I would think of erotica as being you know anything from like um audio stories to like watercolor paintings to illustrations to um hints at the erotic rather than explicitly kind of sexual acts um so I think yeah that that's just also an interesting kind of point of differentiation there so in talking about mainstream porn um through the lens of you know as I said that there of kind of um what we think of when we think about googling porn and going to uporn or something like that that type of porn um in terms of is it causing violence versus or, or the kind of the reverse like I, again I don't I don't think that it's necessarily such a simple 
or like I mean not simple but like a single singularly I don't think there's a singular thing in that I think you know again if we're looking through this kind of systemic approach it's we're looking at there's a lack of sex education for teenagers um there's certain cultural beliefs that they've grown up with um you know again varying country to country religion to religion household to household um social group to social group all of that then we're also looking at you know where do they go given that there's a lack of education um porn's a really easy place to go for that there's also like we don't really have skills around filtering good information from bad information we've got access to google which has a whole new suite of information um you know so i, I think there's all of these factors around pornography um, and pornography often gets blamed for um you know for these things and and certainly you know i think we do see you know for example rates of anal sex have gone up hugely alongside um younger age groups and and the kind of um growth in porn and so i think definitely there's there's trends in that but i i don't think we can i don't think we can isolate it to a single thing i think the the use of porn and the type of porn that folks are watching is actually representative of a much broader systematic problem which is again like a lack of education um like the continued shame stigma etc around it gender roles and you know the idea of what it means to be a man and toxic masculinity and um how that influence influence people this idea of like performative sex um this idea of like this is what it means to experience quote pleasure in sex and yeah i think all of that kind of gets jumbled into porn's the villain <laughs> kind of kind of a, a way of thinking um so yeah you know i think i wouldn't I, and i'm not surprised that we're seeing an increase in violence of that but well actually i don't and i don't even know if i would say there's an increase of violence or it's just more that we're starting to track violence you know i think violence has probably always been there um I think whether I, I don't I don't think porn is necessarily the only cause. I think um, it is one of many issues um, and porn itself is also there's also some really phenomenal examples of porn. So I think it's it's more to me a question of like, what are we providing as an alternative to, you know, young people that are wanting to explore and learn about sex? Um, how are we providing context around that porn? How are we also providing, you know, support and mental health for people that are um, experiencing, you know, porn-like addictions? Um, and, and yeah, how do we almost have like the context and the premise around it um, as opposed to treating porn as the kind of singularly bad thing as well as um, not necessarily educating folks on porn essentially being a Hollywood blockbuster film, not indicative of what the, the real situation and the real experience actually looks like in practice. Yeah, no, I get that. I do think though, if we could flood the mainstream market with lots of really good feminist porn, then yeah. I think that's the answer. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, like, um, you know, porn versus erotica, but if we're kind of putting them all under the bucket of like sexual stimuli, like, that has existed since the dawn of time you know that and that that's not going away um and i don't necessarily think it has to go away or should go away you know i think actually going back to the conversation between desire and arousal you know sexual stimuli are really helpful for a lot of folks in terms of kickstarting that arousal process and, and they play a key role in that and we also know that you know fantasy sexual aids toys porn erotica etc is often recommended by therapists is often you know something that's used by sexual practitioners in terms of encouraging arousal and desire encouraging um, exploration of boundaries in relationships um, encouraging kind of what I think for a lot of us has become a lazy imagination and and it plays a really critical role all of those things in doing that it's to me it's not about the tool it's about the education around the tool and that's where I definitely feel we're lacking so is it true that when it came to raising capital for for the app you were told you'd be more likely to be successful if you focused on porn 
<laughs> that is true. Yes, we've been we've been told a lot of things around raising capital, um, which in, in, you know, I say that on the flip side has been wicked because um, one, it becomes the motivation and it just becomes something that we use to be like, okay, this is why we exist, because we're still getting questions like this. But also it becomes a really great filter mechanism for um, people you want to work with and people you don't. And it, it's meant that, you know, the, the, the kind of investors that we've got now are so fully on board with our way of thinking um you, you know they they get it and they support it whereas you know other other investors that ask certain questions like that or questions like why are women a big enough market you know is sex really an issue that to us is like cool that's a very clear indicator of why why we won't work well together mm-hmm. um in terms of why we were kind of encouraged to focus on porn i mean like first off porn is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly lucrative industry. Um, You know, to put it in perspective, there's around 26 million adult sites on the internet. And I think it's like something around 30 million unique visitors watching porn any given second of the day. So it's massive. Um, (laughs) You know, and then on the other side of that, and this is, you know, where I think porn does actually get a little bit of or or doesn't always get the credit it it kind of deserves as an industry is it's very very technologically innovative so you know on one hand you see things that I would struggle with personally so for example like um you know there's been quite a bit of I think it was the BBC uh either the BBC the Guardian did um a documentary on the rise of like sex robots and looking at sex robots through a feminist lens and I think yeah that that's one where I'm like technical innovation, cool, but, um, you know, having like resist functions on your robots, not so great. And there's like a very big education piece there missing around, um, yeah, sexual norms, roles, violence, etc. On the flip side, if you look at things like, you know, the evolution of online payments, um, higher internet speeds, for example, video streaming, all of that is essentially like, has essentially developed and evolved because of the porn industry um streaming i think you could you can literally trace back and and same higher internet speed so people can stream you can basically trace back to the evolution of of porn so they are as an industry like for better or worse some really phenomenal things coming out of it also some you know kind of ethical questionably ethically questionable things like any industry um is a really technologically savvy industry to be part of and also one that's like just so unbelievably lucrative um you know so it's it's a big big market and I can see why for um when raising capital you know thinking through market size thinking through um billions of dollars thinking through technical innovation as well as like a big component of it is people get it like you know when Billy and I started doing this and we first started coming up with this idea a few years ago people they just didn't get it including the people who are experiencing it because we've spent the better part of our lives being educated that like it's normal for you not to orgasm or it's you know women typically don't get in the mood or women don't masturbate and so to actually have to go through the education piece when you're pioneering a market. And I would say ourselves alongside a handful of other companies are literally the pioneers of this market um, is like, <laughs> there's, there's just an information gap. Um, so I think, you know, when we come in, we say, cool, like we want to work on sexual well-being, and people think, cool, sex, technology therefore sex tech therefore porn it was very new to understand the rise of the female technology industry and that was and also thinking through um sexual well-being through the lens of mental health as opposed through the lens of sexual stimuli toys um you know video erotica etc the idea of actually thinking about the aspect of focusing on if you'd like the gas of the brain and the breaks of the brain together and the desire component, as opposed to just hitting the gas of the brain and the arousal component was a very, very new way of, and is a very new way of thinking. Um, And I just don't think that the education was there around, around why 
femtech matters and not only why femtech matters but why beyond um why we need to think beyond just providing sexual stimuli um and and so i think yeah there was a combination of like <laughs> porn can make us money porn's really technologically innovative we know porn combined with like this whole female sexuality thing's a little bit confusing how does it really work do women really invest in their sex what's the link between sex and, and mental health um and and just kind of a lack of education around that so tell me about furley for those of folks who don't know what furley is um it's an audio app that provides um a combination of different types of comfort content to help folks um have healthier more confident more pleasurable sex so Within those streams of content, some of that content involves um, what we call our do practices. So these might be things like uh, guided masturbation sessions, um, a journaling session that draws on cognitive behavioral therapy. It might be a mindful um, eating exercise. So they're, they're very much um, practices that one does to learn by doing. We also have a stream of content in there, which is called the learn track. And those are essentially the kind of food for thought, sciencey style podcasts that provide context around things. So what's desire, what's an orgasm, um, what's mindfulness, what's a cognitive distortion, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third stream of content we have in there is um, erotica. So those are essential stories that range from, you know, mild spiciness to higher spiciness um, and are there to allow folks to kind of um, play around with their arousal, play around with their desire, explore fantasies, explore boundaries, et cetera, in a way that's safe and private to them. Actually, what we started with are the kind of three pillars of what we define as sexual well-being, which is health, confidence, and pleasure. And this comes from a lot of research I've done, um, also a lot of conversations I've had with practitioners. This comes from working with our in-house psychosexual therapist and um, essentially creating what we see as the three pillars of sexual well-being. Within that, we use the different types of content to basically bolster those pillars. So body mapping is a guided practice that we would use that would fit within the do content that allows folks to um, practice mindfulness, to draw on what's called sensate touch, to essentially play red light, green light with their bodies, um, and to also just sit there and exist with the sensations of what feels good, what doesn't, without judgment, without commentary, et cetera. Likewise, um, nurturing desire, we know that libido is um, a, a very common uh, challenge for a lot of our community members. So it's around a combination of kind of the learn type content around what actually is desire, you know, this conversation around our gas and our brakes, around um, how the brain works, the neuroscience of desire, the difference between desire and arousal, as well as some guided practices to then help make sense of that. So for example, some journaling around what are my beliefs around desire, um, a guided masturbation around um, tuning into my body and fantasy, does it help my desire, et cetera. So yeah, I would say it's not, it's not particular like content sessions that form the foundation of what we do so much more of those those pillars of sexual well-being and then to allow our community to get to those we provide content that actually helps them heal if they're coming in from a position of negative sexual experiences or sexual difficulty that helps them maintain that if they're kind of in a more sex positive space and sexually empowered space or if they want to kind of like quote level up their sexual journey it also allows them to transform that um, yeah, so I think it's it's more around um, depending on the starting point of where a community is coming in. You know, if, if they're kind of heal, maintain, transform track, it's using confident or it's using content across those different types to help them build up their overall sexual well being. Okay. Um, well, what I normally do at the end of this, I, I realize I've kept you talking for a while, and you were right. <laughs> I got through half my question. <laughs> Um, there's a lot to talk about actually, on this topic <laughs> um, but I probably should call it to a halt so um what I ask people to do is to describe their one note in vulnerability so that's one thing on the topic of vulnerability in the context of sex that you think people should know mm. so I think this goes back to the kind of conversation we had around um what is vulnerability or authentic self etc I think for me um 
actually like sex. I feel like when we talk about vulnerability, we often talk about vulnerability through the lens of ourselves and, and others and that interaction. The, the take that I would have it is that actually, just like we would say with sex, is vulnerability needs to start with oneself and be applied in the same way. So I suppose in other words, I need to be able to be in a vulnerable relationship with myself before I'm able to invite someone else in to share my vulnerability. And I think, you know, especially when we're thinking about shame, you know, for example, Brené Brown um, and the kind of topics around like love and belonging and authenticity and vulnerability being a tool to facilitate connection with others. I, I think my take on it would be is that in the same vein, vulnerability allows us to facilitate that connection with ourselves, you know, to see ourselves, to hear ourselves, to be real with ourselves, to show up for ourselves, et cetera. And so I think, to give ourselves permission to actually experience joy, to experience pleasure, you know, and, and the negatives to experience fear, to experience loss, to experience shame, et cetera. Um, but to do that with ourselves and, and to focus on vulnerability with self first. And once we've kind of given ourselves permission to do that and become more com comfortable and familiar with that, then to invite others in to share in our vulnerability. I love that. That's a really good one. Thank you so much for that. That's been such an interesting discussion. I really appreciate you coming on. No worries. Thanks so much for having me and also for, um, for such great questions. I love the, um, the breadth and the diversity in the, in the conversation, which was cool. It was really awesome to have. Awesome. No problem.